Many of you know the mission statement on this channel is to end the war on drugs and take all of those resources to go after the predators. And we have covered some of the super predators like Epstein, uh, Maxwell, um, Jimmy Savile, etc. on this channel. Now, in the last year, we have had victims of trafficking and grooming on the channel. And the viewers have said, you guys have said that, you know, these are some of the most moving stories. How can we get involved? How can we get changes made in the legal system? Look at Samantha Brown's evil pimp of Birmingham, slap on the wrist. Look at Maya's dad who bred her just so he could do those horrible things to her, slap on the wrist. And one of the things that Maya said was that the justice system is upside down. You know, you've got kids in America, for example, three strikes laws doing 25 to life for weed possession. If you don't believe that, this is documented in the Hemp Museum in Amsterdam, where I went researching my War on Drugs series of books. We've got all the facts and the names on the wall in there. So, Andrew here, may, you may have seen um, a short interview we did with him on Atwood Unleashed really resonated well he's got a youtube channel just under 100 subscribers it's going to be a hell of a lot more um than that by the time people have watched this video all of his links are going to be in the description box and i urge you to go down and subscribe to his youtube channel and support his other works it's really important we're going to get into the into it in much more detail today so andrew was part of the people who caused the Modern Day Slavery Act to be enacted in this country. So these super predators now are potentially getting life sentences. Did I phrase that correctly? Yeah, that'll do. That will do. <laughs> so he's absolutely at the tip of the spear in putting these traffickers away for long periods of time. The charity, Unseen, it's absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, if you go on the, the webpage and, and look at the stories, the personal stories of the people Unseen have helped. Some of them, this is just a fraction of them. They've got pseudonyms. There's Tanya, Frank, Priscilla, Trung, Clara, Roman, Harriet, Sang, Adam, Martin. There's a page of all those stories, and I urge you to go over and just read the stories because conventionally we think of you know, trafficked is like sex trafficked by, you know, some kind of um, mafia. But these people are trafficked into all kinds of different positions. And when I say positions, you know, I'm euphemizing. They're forced to work as slaves, whereby when they arrive at the foreign country, they're told, you know, they're 10,000 in debt. And to pay that off, we're going to pay you 50 pence an hour. That's just one example. So they've got these people working for them as slaves year after year after year. And if they have medical problems, there's you know horror stories of people's teeth getting knocked out with hammers. And uh, it, Anyway, it's all on the website. If you want to see the great work that Andrew is doing, then please support them because um, we're constantly getting asked by people, what can we do? We've got this mission statement. How are we going to get changes made in the world? What can we do? Well, Andrew's out there, he's up and down the country getting his message out. And I absolutely salute him for his um, 
bravery and his determination in achieving what he's achieved so far. And I think there's a lot more coming. So huge thank you for coming on, Andrew. No, pleasure to be here. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, I've, I've run down to me background there. We're going to get more into it in a minute, though. So what is the story of this person, Robert, that Unseen helped? So this was, so Unseen started in um, 2007, and this is a story from about 2008-9. Um, we were invited to go um, on a police raid in Cambridgeshire uh, that was looking at a farm um, where there was suspicion that there were workers that were enslaved. So they were in what was called forced labor exploitation. Um, so the raid started at 5 a.m. in the morning, which because that's when they start on the fields. Um, and they pulled all these people off at 5 a.m. in the morning, um, recognizing that they were potentially victims and saying, we're here to help. Uh, you know, the police are saying, we're here to help. You're not in trouble. Um, we, you're not going to be arrested. Um, but we know that you're being forced uh, to work against your will. And there was silence for the next 12 hours. Nobody would talk to the police. We were, were trying to engage with them all the time. Um, and I met this one guy, um, we'll call him Robert, that's not his real name. We, we never use the real names um, in order to protect identity. Um, and just was chatting with him, you know, through an interpreter. Um, he was from uh, Eastern Europe. He was six foot six and he was built like a brick house. Okay, I mean, you just, you would not argue with him. <laughs> you know, if he said jump, the response would be how high. <laughs> um, so, you know, not an ounce of fat on him. Um, but he he was, you know, really nervous in, in talking with me and, and really, you know, just unsure, almost sort of monosyllabic answers, yes, no, in that whole process. And, and I kept reassuring him, look, the, the, the police aren't going to arrest you. You're not going to go to jail. You're not going to get kicked out of the country. We want to help. We, we think you're in trouble. After about 12 hours, so about 5 p.m., 6 p.m. at night, he, he came across and he said, um, let me tell you the real story. Um, just pull your mic a bit closer to you. And uh, so, yeah. the, the story was he had been offered a job in the UK to work on a farm. And he was told he would earn so much, which for him was way more than he could earn in his, his own country. And he said cost you $40 for a coach trip. When he got here, the $40 was actually $4,000. He was then in tied housing, but there was a job. Um, and the farmer was paying him actually more than minimum wage through backs and everything else. What he didn't know was that the gang ha had control of his bank account. And so the money would go in and the money would go out and Robert never saw the money. And actually every week he got charged rent that he couldn't pay. He was charged for the transportation and charged for food. And he was getting more and more into debt. And then he was told they would show me on a mobile phone up-to-date pictures of my family back home and saying, if you say anything, you'll, you know, they will get it in that whole process. So the reason he hadn't said anything for 12 hours was he was terrified for himself and for his family. Even when the police had told him, we have arrested the traffickers at the same time as we pulled you off the field. You know, it's a coordinated operation. For 12 hours, just none of them, and there were loads of them, would say anything. So the story came out. He was then rehoused, new bank account, kept his job, and got the back pay, which is great. However, that night, um, we went to the supermarket, bought him some supplies and everything else just to settle him into the new house. And the reason the story has never left me is 
remember six foot six, built like a brick house. I remember standing on the door about to leave with him and he looked me in the eye and he was terrified and he said, can you reassure me that my traffickers do not know where I am and can you reassure me that my family are safe? And I said, yes, they don't know where you are because they're locked up and your family, because it's, it's been what's called a joint investigation team. It was a joint operation in both the, the UK and the other country. Your family are safe. What struck me was, how could someone that's six foot six, built like a brick house, have been taken to a place where they were terrified? Terrified to the point that they wouldn't engage, not just with police, that I can understand, but with an NGO as well, who were reassuring them that are working with them. He showed incredible courage just to say, actually, my story is a story of exploitation. Uh, and it's a story of control that not is just control here, but control all the way back to my home country as well. Um, and it's on a British farm picking vegetables that go onto the shelves of supermarkets where you and I purchase every day. This is slavery. Did you say Hertz? It was in Hertz? What? It, the location? Uh, no, it was in Cambridgeshire. Cambridgeshire. Slavery in Cambridgeshire. We, you know, we see movies about slavery. We think of like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Slavery today in Cambridgeshire. And this is happening all over the country, is it? It, it, it is, you know, and, and the, the estimates are probably at any one time 100,000 people. 100,000 slaves in the UK? In the UK. Today? Today. And our money going to shops, we are purchasing the products from the, these slaves of their works contributed to us. Yeah, and, and, and one thing that, uh, there's a question, well, there's three questions that I ask people, because people go, well, yeah, it happens overseas, or it's, you know, it's in, you know, it's in the sex trade, or it's that, and I'm not touched by that in any shape or form. And actually, part of our job is to say, actually, all of us are touched by this issue. And, and we do it without, without knowing it. So, you know, I'm, I'm wearing a, a cotton jumper. Um, I've eaten food today, um, and we're using technology to communicate with people well without doing anything my life probably touches 40 to 60 slaves as does your life wow w without doing anything so and that's because of what we call forced labor exploitation being forced to work against your will with little or virtually no pay yeah. with no opportunity to leave that situation yeah. in order for the traffickers to make vast vast profits wow so there is a whole range of trafficking and Andrew, last time, talked to us. The most horrific end of this is like organ trafficking. We'll get to that later on. But um, stereotypically, people think of people just, who've just been sex trafficked. But there's, there's so many people getting trafficked around the world for other purposes. So why did you start this mission in the first place? Um, well, another story. Go for it. So... Uh, a friend and a, a colleague of mine was uh, went to the Ukraine uh, and was attending a conference there. And at the end of the conference, they were in the hotel bar area, um, a, a whole bunch of them, Brits and, and um, Yanks. Uh, and this woman approached them and said, are you the people that I'm meant to meet? And they went, mm, no, <laughs> who are you? And she said, oh, and she got out this ad that was from one of the papers, you know, like the national papers in Ukraine. And it was an ad for a job in Central Park in New York. 
selling ice cream for $80,000. Now, d just put that into context, $80,000, A, that job never exists anyway, but $80,000 in a Ukrainian context, is that, that's like life-changing, you know, be, beyond life-changing. And they, fortunately, one of the, the guys there was um, ex-FBI, and he said, listen, there's no such job. You, you don't get paid $80,000 for selling ice cream in Central Park. He said, I've seen these type of ads before. If, if you follow up on that ad, you will be flown to the US and you will end up in sex trafficking. Yeah, you know, this is a, it's a classic um, sort of gotcha. Just at that moment, the trafficker came in, the person that she was meant to be meeting. And uh, they said, look, do not go with him, you know, go home. Um, but the trafficker was having none of it. And he said, well, the only way I will let her go from this hotel is if you pay me. So they said, fine, we'll pay you, you know, because there's no way that she's going to, you know, you're going to get her claws into her. So they, they scrabbled together the dollars that they had and paid him off and he left. And they, and they had enough money, they kept enough money back, gave her money so she could get home um, and said, look, never respond to these ads again. You know, that, you know you've learned <laughs> a really important lesson. And they thought that was the end of it. Few, she, she left a while later. The trafficker came back with the local police because they were in on the trafficking oh, as well God. and tried to extract more money. And th they said, no, we're not paying you anymore. But they then said to themselves, we're leaving town. <laughs> and they left town. Um, so that story came back. I've been to the Ukraine. I don't know whether you've ever been. I mean, this is back in the day. Um, and, and, and I, you know, the parts of it are fairly wild west or, or they were then. Um, I told this story once and I had a Ukrainian come up to me and said, our country's not, no longer like that. I said, great, good to hear. Um, but that sort of piqued my interest, you know, in terms of that's, that's not a typical sort of go on a trip and come back around that. At the same time, another friend of mine had spent, she was a teacher and she'd spent a number of summers also working in Ukraine, but working amongst the social orphan problem. And she... Um, was concerned about what happened to kids at 16 because they get kicked out of the orphanages um, and there aren't many life chances at 16 in Ukraine. And she said, I kept asking, like, what can we do at 16 or what more, you know, can we help? What happens to these kids? And the authorities just didn't want to engage. And um, in the end, I, mean, I, I affectionately describe her as a sort of rabid terrier on heat. Um, <laughs> She just kept going and going and going, demanding to know what happened to these kids. And I'm so glad that she did. Because they said, well, actually, their life chances are they will either end up as a drug addict, a prostitute, or they get picked up by the traffickers. And the traffickers have the temerity to come on the days, and they know which days are turfing out days. And the kids come out, and they get into the back of the Mercedes, and they drive off, and they're never seen again. Mm. Now, back when this was happening, it was, it was reckoned then, this is the early 2000s, about 400,000 Ukrainians had disappeared what? into trafficking around the world. Um, so these two stories sort of came back to me a, a few months apart. And they said, you know, like sometimes it's like the purple car syndrome. You know, once you see it, you start seeing it. And I just occasionally saw stories in the press about it. And I'd grown up like you had, thinking, well, transatlantic slave trade, William Wilberforce, it all ended 200 plus years ago and the world's moved on from that. And I thought, but this is very, very similar. This is people being bought and sold. What, what's going on here? Kept reading, doing stuff. 
And then I read this article, and it was just, again, a historic piece talking about sort of very early noughties, um, late 90s, early noughties, about how trafficking gangs move people from Eastern Europe to the US. And what it said was that they moved them, they flew them, but they avoided the major hub airports like your Heathrow's, your Gatwick's, Frankfurt's, et cetera, to avoid detection. And they used the regional airports in the UK primarily because back then, before 9-11, you could fly direct from, well, I'm from Bristol, you could fly Bristol to New York, so small airport to small airport in New York, and you, you wouldn't get as much scrutiny on it. So they were using that. And this article named Bristol Airport as one of the airports that was being used. Um, and so, um, and at that time I, I was working for a church and we were doing a lot of social justice stuff with the poor and the marginalized and all that. So I had a lot of contacts into the council and everything else. And I just went, this is wrong. This is just, <laughs> whichever way you slice it, this is wrong. So I wrote what I thought was normal. So I wrote to every single councillor at Bristol City Council to um, all the MPs in the Bristol area and to the chief constable saying, I've come across this issue in another country, Ukraine. I've now come across this article that names Bristol Airport. What, what is going on and what can we do to help? Um, I thought that was kind of like just a normal response. <laughs> Apparently it wasn't. Um, that led to a very senior police officer contacting me out of the blue um, on my mobile phone. I don't ever recall giving my mobile phone number out, but that's a story for another day. Um, <laughs> And he came and we had a, like a four hour, three to four hour off the record conversation. And that conversation was basically, it peeled a layer off the city of Bristol and it peeled a layer off the UK. And it was about trafficking and slavery. And this is back 2007. It was predominantly then understood about sex trafficking. There was a little bit of understanding around forced labor, domestic servitude, and we can unpack that later. But he said to me, look, there are tens, you know, of how, nearly about 65, 75 residential properties in Bristol that are being used as illegal brothels. And we know the women are trafficked in and forced, you know, to have sex, which is, you know, under legal definition is called rape, um, you know, 10, 15 clients a day. We, when we find it, all we can do is kick the doors in. We... In order to get those victims out, we arrest them under immigration offences. And he said, that just to me is wrong, arresting victims. But that was the only mechanism that they had at this stage. We will take them, we'll put them in a and b in a hotel overnight. They disappear. And we know they go straight back to their trafficker for all the control mechanisms. You know, like Robert, it's just the same thing repeated. Moves to a different part of the country. They are back in exploitation. We have no idea who the bad guys are. I'm a frustrated copper um, in th this whole process. And I said, okay, what do you need? That was my first mistake. <laughs> and he said, I need somewhere safe to put these people where they can be cared for because they are really, really da damaged people, you know, what's happened to them. And I said, okay, I'll do that on one condition. You're my first trustee because you know more than me at this point. And he agreed. So we shook hands on it. So that's actually how Unseen started in, in sort of that situation. Because he was senior enough, I, he was able to then get me into the likes of the Serious Organized Crime Agency, which is now the National Crime Agency and the Home Office, to sort of try and understand and unpack a bit more what he had told me what was going on in the UK at that time. Um, 
the person that I told you about that worked in Ukraine with the, the orphanages, uh, she was a teacher. Uh, Kate, she said, I've had enough of teaching. I'm going to take three or four months off. You've got anything interesting that you're currently working on, thinking on? I said, do you fancy opening a safe house? I've no idea what it means, but, <laughs> you know, sh should we give it a go? And she said, yeah, come on, let's try it. So she <laughs> she was on board. So Kate, Kate and I sort of started the whole the whole process. So we started writing these bids, you know, all over the place. Um, a housing um, association said, oh, we've got a house. We'll give you a house. Um, and th that was almost sort of lastminute.com. And then out of the blue, at the, at the end of sort of, we thought we were, it just wasn't going to succeed. Um, Comic Relief believed in us and said, okay, we'll give you a quarter of a million to, wow, to do this. Fantastic. So that so we opened our first safe house um, around that. And, and by that stage, you know, um, some time had passed, we became part of what's now called the UK's National Referral Mechanism. And so we started getting victims. Um, at the same time, we said, look, we, we don't want Unseen to be a charity that is just going to create more and more safe houses because that's kind of accepting that shit happens um, and we'll just you know, we'll deal with the mess. We said we need to turn the tap off. So our mission statement is we want to put ourselves out of business. So yours is we want to end the war on drugs. I want to not be the CEO of Unseen. <laughs> that, that's, that's my aim yeah. around that. So we said we'll, we'll do two things simultaneously. We will deal with the problems that are immediately in front of us, which is primarily caring for victims, working with the statutory authorities so they understand victims better, that they are better informed, uh, they know what the processes are. We'll work with businesses so that cotton isn't tainted by slave labor, etc. Um, we'll work with local government, we'll work with national governments, governments around the world at the strategic end in terms of, look, don't do anything. We'll just do more and more of this. Do something, um, and you can turn the tap off um, eventually. To cut a very long story short, um, in 2011, um, I was approached by a think tank in London uh, to say, look, can you go and investigate what is happening around? Um, and then we called it human trafficking in, in the UK, what, what the response is. So for two years, I went the length and breadth of the UK, talked to about 200 different organizations and individuals. Um, and we published this report in 2013, and it wasn't pretty um, mm. in terms of what, what was going on and, and the level of response and understanding by you know, who should have known better. What was the conclusion? The, the conclusion was modern slavery is alive and well in the United Kingdom. And we deliberately called it modern slavery. We knew it was slightly provocative because of the reference back to the transatlantic slave trade. But in essence, it was the same thing. People being bought and sold in order to generate vast profits for their slave masters or exploiters. Um, and, and awful, awful outcomes and abuses for victims. Um, so uh, two years, published that report in March 13. In May 15, I was in the cabinet office with the cabinet where Theresa May said to me, based on your report, we're going to bring forward primary legislation, which was called the Modern Slavery Bill. Wow. And then from 2013 to 2015, I, I lost a lot of my life to Westminster. I'm still carrying the scars. Um, but yeah. I, um, I was in the House of Lords when the bill became an act. It was the last act of the coalition government. Remember that? Um, and then we have, apparently this is, I didn't know this. You probably don't know this, but do you know how a bill becomes an act? No. So a, a man in black tights 
uh, parades a piece of parchment from the House of Lords <laughs> across the Palace of Westminster, and then it goes to the Queen for approval, and it becomes an act. <laughs> so um, in in May 15, the, the Modern Slavery Act came into effect. Um, wow. So that was kind of like, great, but we still haven't turned the tap off. Um, and, and let me put that into context. Last year in lockdown, over 10,000 victims were entered into the UK's national referral mechanism. That's in lockdown. So this is men, women, and children, UK nationals and non-UK nationals. And in a few years' time, it will be UK nationals that are the number one nationality found in situations of slavery, whether that's forced labor, domestic servitude, forced criminality, sexual exploitation, the, you name it. I've got so many questions then based on what you just said. So I started out saying, you know, let's end that war on drugs. America spent $2 trillion on the war on drugs and the situation is worse than ever. Look at fentanyl. Imagine then all that surveillance that they did of people all those wiretaps, all those resources were directed at the houses, the properties that have got the trafficked women in them. And they look at where the money's going, they track the money, and, they, and it, it's got to go up, hasn't it, to the, the bosses? Isn't that the way to cut off the head of the snake? Um, Yes, but I think there's other things that, that also need to come into play as well. So th let's try and quantify the size of the problem that we're dealing with. Okay. So this figure is nearly 10 years out of date, and it's a UN figure. So it's going to be conservative at best. And I would say you could probably easily double or triple it. But about 10 years ago, the ILO estimated that the profits, so not the turnover, the profits from modern slavery were $150 billion per annum. Worldwide? Worldwide. Jesus, that's a big wall of money. That is. Now, everybody goes, like, Apple make these vast profits. Yeah. They make, like, single digit, just about a billion profit. Yeah. So think of something like 150 times the size of Apple, and that's conservative. That's the profit. Now, yes, we do want all-out focus on this crime, but it's an economic crime and it's a crime that is driven by both the demand and the supply. Now, what I mean by the demand is, it's driven by the demand and our demand for cheap goods, cheap services and cheap labor. That's, that is, that's if you like, the fuel in it. The supply side is that we have a world full of vulnerable people. You know, whether that is Fleeing persecution, fleeing climate change, fleeing, and I use the term fleeing, no economic chances whatsoever, um, or vulnerable people like the homeless or people that have uh, been abused uh, in their past or, or just vulnerable to, there's a horrible terminology called a lover boy. So um, I seduce you, you know, I shower you with gifts, you're the love of my life, you fall, you know, you fall for it. And then I suggest, why don't we go there for holiday? <laughs> you go there for holiday. Oh, just give me a passport as we go through. I'll look after it. Say if that's the last you ever see of the passport. Let's go to this place. This is where we're staying. And when you arrive, you, you realize it's an illegal brothel and you're sold and you're trapped. And then your quote's broken. 
um, and then you're then you're exploited. Your what's broken? You're broke. It's a, a terminology. So they break people. So w- within sex trafficking, you have people that are uh, within the, the sex trade, um, and they can be trafficked, um, and then they're exploited further than they would have agreed to in the past. Or you have people that have no connection with the sex trade. So the the lover boy thing. Oh, I think you know this is you know we're just going on a holiday. And then you realize you've been sold into a, a, a brothel uh, and a pimp, um, and you're broken. And I mean, and th- Does that some involve like getting injected with drugs and stuff, or uh, if only uh, it, it is, you'll be repeatedly raped, um, and that's the breaking in. And then you're told you will now have to service X number of clients a day and make this amount of money. And if you don't, then you're beaten up. Or again, the f- the phone thing. You know, oh, this is your family, or this is your brother, <sighs> or this is as a means of control. Bloody hell. Oh, it turned your stomach. All right, so you said there's 150 billion. I've just got to go back then to say that that money's got, it, it leaves, a, you know, it's traceable then. It, they've got to go after that to stop the people running it. Because I imagine in these houses, they've probably got people who have been trafficked running the running the girls. Like, as they get older, they probably run the girls. So if you police go in, they're just arresting victims and victims who've become perpetrators. But there's like local thugs and local bosses and where the, the money goes up to them. They, they, if there's a problem, the girls call these people. But all those calls and all that money going up, it's, the, the police have got the resources to, to look at that. If they weren't fighting this bloody war on drugs. So, um, y- yes. One of the things that was in the Modern Slavery Act was we... Um, the offences are deemed what we call lifestyle offences. So if you get um, a- arrested for it, the-, the law enables you then to take off that individual, what they call the Proceeds of Crime Act. So any proceeds from that criminal act in there, because it is a financial crime. The, the second thing is, yes, that money does slosh around the world's financial systems. Um, and since... You know, since we've started, we've done a lot of work with the finance sector and we, and we still do. So there is an awful lot of focus now on follow the money. Where, where does the money go? But you've got to understand, these are sophisticated, illegal business people that are in here. They're very good at hiding where the money goes. Lots of front companies, lots of money laundering, cleaning the money so that, and, and, and often, you know, with, just think of car washes, nail bars, brothels, etc. It's all cash. So they've got to clean that cash in that whole process you know there's stories around the globe of, of people being caught with large amounts of cash on them you know trying to cross boundaries uh in in that whole process so yeah it's we do need to go after the money but they're very 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 well resourced and sophisticated enemy um you know and they're now moving into bitcoin and and, and everything else so th- it's it's not that we you know we need to change things we need to catch up before we can change things you know the, the resourcing you're you're, fi- you're fighting really well resourced criminality in in this whole process. The other thing is that they're using technology as well. So you're saying, is there somebody in the house that you know is taking the cash and and, and everything else? Often these days, not. They'll they'll use webcams to keep an eye on what's going on, because and this is the thing that people sort of say to me: Why didn't people? Why don't people just flee these situations? Well, hopefully, Robert's story, you know, the the other stories that I've told. That there's a theme that runs through it, which is. In the transatlantic slave trade, you control people because they were shackled. They couldn't run away. 
With, with modern slavery, the controls are psychological shackles. You can't run away. You can't ask for help. You know, I've lost count of whether myself personally or my, my colleagues that go out with the police often will say, we'll say to ourselves, that person is a victim of trafficking. But they'll go to their balloon effect, no, I'm not. Do you need help? No. No, no, no. Look, there's no, there's no police here. No, no, I don't need help. Sometimes months later, they'll call our helpline because you know, we always leave the, the number for them. Uh, and then the story comes out. And they said, I, I couldn't. I, I just couldn't leave. Now, some have the courage and, and pluck up the courage. And we see this with trafficking for sexual exploitation. You know, they either get turfed out when they're no longer viable, profitable, or they, they just somehow, somewhere grab hold of that hope and that courage and they flee that situation. But that's an extraordinary step to take when you think about what you, what they go through, the threats against them. You know, um, the the sometimes the physical violence that's meted out against people as a, as a methodology of control on top of the psychological violence as well. Um, and so we have to, you know, when when we work with with survivors, it is working with individuals that have been broken. Um, and I remember talking to a psychologist once, and they said, look. At a minimum, it is seven years before someone can tell you their story without re-traumatizing themselves. Wow. Um, and yet, you know, they, they come into a system where they've, often they have to tell their story over and over again to different people, you know, to police or to borders, to a lawyer, to, and to just think of that re, you know, traumatization that's going on um, in that whole process. So yeah, we do. We do have to go. We do have to re resource it. Let me. Th the, the Home Office still hold to. There are somewhere between ten and thirteen thousand figures uh, people at any one time held in situations of slavery. And I said earlier, it's a hundred thousand, and and all experts would agree. And I think even the Home Office now would would admit that ten to thirteen thousand figure. It's a little light. <laughs> um, but a few years ago. Um, they said, okay, what is the cost to the UK of slavery? Because that's actually how you get political change and, and focus on it. So they said, based on our 10 to 13,000 figure, we estimate the cost to the UK every year is between 3.8 and 4.3 billion pounds. So my response is, but if the figure's 100,000, isn't the true figure 38 to 43 billion? Therefore, what's our proportionate response? Because I'm, I'm a realist, you know, and especially in light of COVID, you know, you, you've got this much money, how are you going to split it up? And you have to say, okay, well, wh where are the priorities? And priorities, unfortunately, are driven primarily about cost. But these are government figures. So 38 to 43 billion, how much are we spending actually on the quotes of the war on slavery? Although let's never use that and let's learn the mistakes from the war on drugs because mm. that's been a rip-roaring success. Um, so we do need to have a proportionate response. Now, what I would say, when I started Unseen, <laughs> um, policing hardly knew about it. You know, uh, government hardly knew about it. It was a backwater issue. You know, you, occasional media stories. Now it's in the media all the time. You, you have primary legislation. You have a government that is going to review its primary legislation and, and add to it. You do have policing focus, but are we there yet? You know, if you were to just randomly take, you know, meet a police officer and say, 
okay, tell me about modern slavery. What is it? What's your responsibilities? You know, did you know you're a first responder? Do you know how to refer someone to the National Referral Mechanism? It, we've probably trained about 15, I'm being generous, 15,000 police officers. And we have 140,000 police officers in this country. So there's still loads to go. But the way that we tackle this issue is whole society. So it is about you and I making ethical choices about how we shop, asking where we shop, you know, are your supply chains clean in that whole process. It is about breaking our addiction to cheap goods and services and labor because we all love a bargain. Mm -hmm. But I used to work in retail. We taught you to love a bargain. You know, it, it wasn't the consumer demanded it. it. The consumer was taught, so the consumer needs to be retaught. Politicians need to legislate better. We need to be much more victim focused. We need to address all those global big issues of poverty, of climate. You know, so am I going to put myself out of business? I sincerely hope so, but I may be really old and really wrinkly by the <laughs> time we do it. So this 38 to 40 billion figure then, what is that comprised of? Um, the cost of the UK. So th that will be the cost of policing, the cost on public services, the cost on support of victims. So we have a national referral, me uh, national referral mechanism. So the contract for the next five years of support, government support, is 280 million. Um, the, the cost on the economy from the, the grey economy. So, you know, these people are often, you know, we've got forced criminality. County lines, th that is actually trafficking. That's modern slavery. That's child criminal exploitation. So all of these, if you go on the Cabinet Office website, there's a wonderful spreadsheet that tells you the cost virtually of everything. Like if wow. you go to A&E, there's a cost against it. If you go to the dentist, there's a cost against it. If you need this, there's a cost against it. So you add all those figures up and you get to 38 to 43 wow. billion. From your experience then, are the victims primarily brought to this country and what proportion are domestic? So last year, that 10, 10 and a half thousand that went into the national referral mechanism um, UK nationals were at number four in adults and number one in children. Um, the, the, the other nationalities were uh, Chinese, Vietnamese, and, Romain, uh, and Albanian. They're the three biggest. Yeah. Wow. So, and if we carry on at the current rates of growth, with, I would say within two to three years, UK nationals, both adults and children, will be the, the most prominent and I suspect because of things like Brexit and the pandemic, that's why I'm pretty, I would have said five years you know, before the pandemic, but actually it's actually accelerated that process. So this is UK nationals, vulnerable. Um, we're seeing a huge problem within the homeless um, and homelessness is on the increase again. So we're expecting that to, to happen. We're seeing our kids getting sucked into county, county lines, uh, being groomed. Um, so these are UK kids. Um, but also foreign nationals. And even though, you know, um, one of the things with Brexit about taking back control of our borders, we still need people in the NHS. We still need people to pick fruit in the farms and pick vegetables. Robert's story. That's what Robert was working. He, he wanted to come and work. There will be other Roberts. They may just have different nationalities in that whole process because they're coming into a system that allows slavery to exist. You know, you want a 30p cabbage or a three pound t-shirt, there's a cost to that. You, you know, it just, it, it doesn't work. 
it doesn't you know when you a three pound t-shirt well that's someone that's picked cotton in a field that's then gone to a spinning mill that's then gone to a dye that then goes to a, a factory that then's cut cut into a t-shirt that then shipped around the world that then has to go through logistics and distribution to end up in a store or now probably sold online three pounds doesn't cut it <laughs> in any shape or form now if we carry on wanting a three pound t-shirt then we're going to carry on abusing people all the way down the supply chain whether that's here and we saw that you know in leicester you know during the pandemic you know, all the stuff with boohoo around um poor working practices i don't think it hit the threshold of modern slavery but there were poor working practices people working you know for less than minimum wage in in that whole process there there are consequences to the way that we want to live our lives and the consequences are people like robert people you know like frank you know all those people that you can read about on our website yeah, yeah that was my There's, next question was okay so you've got like asians at the top of the list and there was the story of trung and there was the story of sang so what what happened with with those people um Viet vietnamese i tend to end up in three main areas in in the uk in terms of exploitation so uh, either in the cannabis trade so they're they're forced into criminality so they they're brought over and and what usually happens is that their parents will be in debt bondage in vietnam or just facing grinding poverty and that there is no options there they know that they are uh taking a huge risk going from vietnam to the uk those journeys can take up to 5 years by the way what yeah so it isn't just oh i go to the airport i jump on a plane and i land at heathrow and, and everything else it will be up through china into russia across europe often exploited all the way dumped at calais told you got to get across when you get across this is the mobile number you ring in, oh, in that whole process what the hell so um and then mixed into that you remember the the tragedy that we had in essex of the 39 people found in the back of the trailer so for the americans then do you want to just refresh what that what happened there So there was um a a container that came across from a Holland to Harwich was it Harwich or yeah um and then the driver drove and then he claimed that he heard banging and he went open the back of the trailer and there were 39 d- uh bodies in the in the back of the trailer is a refrigerated trailer in that whole process that was not trafficking that was smuggling they had paid someone to get them across an international border but the problem often with sm- smuggling is that you end up really vulnerable uh th- these people it costs them their lives but they were coming to the UK believing that there were jobs here for them either in the restaurant trade or the nail bars um th- so that they could earn money to send back home to support their families or get them their families out of, out of debt the driver know what his cargo was yeah so did he get prosecuted yeah. then did he give anyone up Uh yeah they caught the whole they caught the whole crew caught the whole crew what kind of sentences did they get 39 dead uh i think that they were life life yeah yeah um so yeah it was, it it shocked the country i mean you know i remember when that story came out um i was in london and my my phone lit up from all the news like channel 4 news bbc news everything it was just like can you come and talk about this um and 
you know, I remember saying, look, we don't know whether this is trafficking or smuggling yet. At, at this point, it came out, it, it, it was smuggling. But often smuggling victims end up in trafficking situations. So back to, you know, the, um, victims. So they either end up in forced, crimin forced criminality. So they'll be put in a house. Um, all the windows are blacked out. The door handles are um, wired up to, to the electrics to stop them get, getting out in that whole process. The windows are nailed down. The, all the hydroponics are in there. The plants are in there. And then they're just told, you, you, you water these things. Now, well, this wouldn't be possible if weed was legal. This is, again, is a function of drug laws. I, I don't know whether you've ever been in one of these grow houses. <laughs> it's just, you go and it's like, whoa. <laughs> it's literally, it's just, it's, so imagine being stuck in there. And literally the, their exploiters will come once a week with a, enough food for a week. But, and they just have to, you know, water the plants and, and grow them. Um, they'll be found. The doors are kicked in. Thankfully, now we have much more enlightened police. They, the first thing they think is, have I got victims here in front of me? You know, are these, were these people, um, you know, forced into this situation? So that, that's the first thing. The, the second one is around nail bars. So if you go, you go any town in the UK, you go up and down the high street, once we come out of lockdown, you know, there are nail bars everywhere. Now, traditionally, a manicure would have cost you 80 to 100 quid. You can get manicure now for a tenner, 15 quid, cash only. You go in, they're all Vietnamese or South Chinese. There is usually somebody in the corner watching them. If not, there's a webcam up there. Um, you know, not in all cases. And all of these things, you know. I'm going flashbacks. That's all these nail bars with Asians I've seen. There's one on the top of the Guildford yeah, uh, uh, North Street. Not not all of them are illegal, but that's where we do find lots of victims of, of forced labor. Um, I remember, you know, we uh, we were doing an operation with the police, uh, three different nail bars. Everybody in three unconnected, what we thought were unconnected nail bars, had exactly the same story. Oh, yeah, I was in London. I came down to visit my cousin, you know, and I'm just doing um, work experience. <laughs> yeah. Now, even if they won't talk, often in those places, you, you know, you can try and disrupt through other things. Like, so, you know, a fire officer will go in, trading standards will go in, you know, all the, these things to try and disrupt the whole process. But you're dealing with people that are, are vulnerable around that. And then the, the third area we find them in is uh, within the hospitality sector. Um, and, you know, there's been cases where people have been found sleeping under the counters in the kitchens, you know, and that, again, just forced to work. So if you've got someone that's working, but you never have to pay for them, your profit margin is just going to go up, isn't it? It's kind of like it's an, yeah, it's a no-sum game, isn't it, in that whole process? Okay, so what happened to Trung and Sang? Both of those um, uh, were uh, in f forced labor, uh, so, so nail bars. Nail bars. Yeah. Yeah, and how did they extricate themselves? Um, both, both were found by police, you know, and look, police and border force find about 99% of victims in this country, you know? So I know a lot of what we're talking about is depressing, but I, I always go back to when I started unseeing the situation then to the situation now is totally different, but we haven't arrived in that whole process. Um, and you know, it, it, it's like anything. You, you, I can point to really good examples, and and I do see really good examples of you know where my staff go with police. It's police-led operations, but it's non-uniformed in in that whole process. And it's going in thinking, 
the first thing we think when we go into this situation is there are going to be victims here. So we, we will tread really carefully with them. We will also be really smart as well because they're exploiting maybe there as well. And so, you know, there's, there's the way that it's handled is offering every opportunity to that individual to say, help, please help me. Um, and and you know, back to like Robert, so it, it takes 12 hours of being coaxed and being reassured and just, you know, looking, you know, you know when someone's like, you know, just have I got the courage to say, I need, I need help here. Um, and, and when they do, then, you know, then we as an NGO can step in and say, okay, you know, let's help you. Let's start that journey, that process of recovery. And are they at risk of deportation then if they uh, get out away, away from the traffickers? Um, yes and no. <laughs> so what I mean by that is some, so some victims of trafficking will have come into the country illegally. So I think the first thing to say is that migration in and of itself is not an illegal act. You can move from one country to another. That's, that's not illegal. Um, but if you've, you know, if you've paid a smuggler you know, to get you across a border, that's an illegal act. Um, and any country would say you're an illegal entrant. So sometimes in the press you hear these illegal migrants. That's actually technically not true. You're an illegal entrant. And, and that country, not, not just the UK, any country would say, well, actually, we, we're going to send you back. But if you've got into the hands of smugglers, you can end up in a situation where you're then sold into trafficking or you've overstayed your visa or you've just you've become vulnerable whilst on a visa here in that whole process or with domestic servitude. Uh, what we see is people coming on what we call an overseas worker visa. So only, you're only allowed here for six months. Uh, you, you were abused back in the country that you came from. And you're still abused here and you flee that situation. You disappear into the gray economy and then you get found in, in that whole process. So it, the, the way it should be treated is you take everybody's case, one case at a time, rather than trying to apply a cookie cutter. And what we've always said is, yes, immigration and trafficking are linked, but treat them separately and treat the important thing first which is the trafficking thing, which is you've got a victim of crime, you know, who has, you know, in some circumstances suffered the most appalling violence and abuse. Let's, let's deal with that first and make a decision, what we call a conclusive grounds decision, one way or the other, that they're a victim of trafficking. And then let's sort out their immigration status. Where we are now in 2021, post-Brexit, is nobody has a right to stay in this country post that. The, the government has sort of just indicated it's willing to extend what they call a discretionary leave to remain. So if you're a victim, what, what we would say is we should assess, is it safe for you to go home? And that could be for a whole number of things. It may not be safe because, because of your background and your faith, et cetera, and you say we're trafficked for sexual exploitation. You know, we've had people say, if I go back, I'll be killed, you know, honor killing in that whole process. Or other people will say, but the traffickers are everywhere, you know, and in league with the police and, and, and if I go back, I'll just be re-trafficked in that whole process. Or if I go back, my family will reject me. There's, there's nothing to go back to in that whole process. Or, um, you know, I've been trafficked and I've, I've been in this country now for so many, and this happens to kids, you know, that they, they come in there. You know, as part of their rebuilding of their lives, all they know is the UK. 
And so you say, well, you, you got to go back to this country. And they go, but I have no connections there. And I don't understand it. You know, and as children, you know, our formative years form us. And then you're saying, well, actually, we're now going to put you in this country. So let's look at every individual case. And, and you know, our plea is actually, we should be compassionate because these people have been abused in our country, abused by UK nationals in, in some circumstances. Don't we have a responsibility to look after them? Now, on the flip side, there are victims and, and lots of victims who go, I just want to go home. Do you know what? The UK was pretty crappy. <laughs> it's like, I'm not coming here for a holiday. And all, you know, like, I, I just want to go home. Yeah. And, and you know, we'll work with NGOs in, in source countries to say, okay, this is, this is how they've been cared for. This is their ongoing needs. This is what they need. Um, and ultimately, people need, you know, they need a, a, a caring community. They need a, a, a house and they need employment. Those are the things that keep us safe and keep you know uh, keep us uh, not vulnerable in, in that whole process. So it is, it it is case by case by case. Now, governments don't like to think like that. They go, you know, where's the cookie cutter? Bump, 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 um, and we're going. No, this needs to be case by case by case. Now, what happens when it's UK nationals? You know, it's not safe for me to go home. Why? Well, because I got recruited. <laughs> where I grew up and you're asking me to go back there mm. in that whole process or um, you know the, the, the gangs will know where I am and, and come after me again in, in that whole process now often that's not true but psychologically if, if you believe that's true then, then you remain vulnerable and then tragically and actually some of the most tragic cases do involve UK nationals mm. There was a very famous case uh, a few years back, just over the border. I live in Bristol, just over the border in Wales. There was a guy called Daryl Simister. Simister, do you remember that one? Mm -mm. He had been held in a situation of forced labour for thirty years. Thirty years. Yeah. Doing what? Uh, he lived in a out uh, a caravan in a farmyard. His bath was a trough. Um, and there was no insulation. That's where he lived, and he worked on that farm. And how did he end up in that situation? Um, he had mental health issues. Yeah. Um, and he got preyed upon in that whole process. He disappeared. He was, he was out, I think, with his fact. If I remember the facts of the story, it, people can Google the story um, in, the, in that whole process. It may have been 40 years, actually. They've yeah. got that figure wrong. But he, his, his parents never, ever gave up hope that they would find him in, in that whole process. But it, uh, he had mental health issues. He got... Um, he, he disappeared. He wandered off somehow. He got picked up. He was offered, oh, we'll give you board and lodging and, 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 you know, all the warmth. And then he was trapped in that whole process and just worked on that farm. Good grief. Yeah. That's insane. And, and unfortunately, you know, we could spend the rest of this, our time just t telling those stories of people, you know, decades. Mm. And, and when people say, oh, you know, modern slavery isn't the transatlantic slave trade. No, it isn't. They're, they are different. I get that. But tell me what the difference is when you lose 40 years of your life. So do you have stories of, for example, whereby Robert could possibly get, you know, he's freed and he's established, he's got his job and he's getting, actually getting his money, whereby they actually bring the family over to the UK from a place of poverty and risk? Um, if only you'd said the US. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you will know in terms of the increasing sort of hostile environment in the UK, um, we would argue that we should be, that's the route that we should be going down. We've just put a submission into government um, arguing for that. In the US, they have a thing called a T visa where you're a victim of trafficking. So if you are an identified victim of trafficking and an NGO and a police force agree that you are, you can then apply for a T visa. Now, when the, when the US government brought this in, there was an out, outrage. We're going to be swamped by thousands of people. The threshold for a T visa is pretty high in, in that whole process. So, you know, you, there's got to be conclusive grounds that you are. But you can apply for this. It's not a green card, but you get five years and you can bring your family over. And at the end of that five years, you can be on a route to a green card in that whole process. In the years since they opened it, they've never hit the quota in any year. What year did they open it? Oh, gosh, I knew you were going to ask me that. Uh, the early 2000s. Google it, guys, um, and put, put the answer in the chat. <laughs> Let me know. They will. <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> but w what's really interesting is it works, but it's not for everybody. Because it, I think that the mentality is, oh, everybody's going to want to stay where they are. But staying where you were exploited isn't always the best option, you know. And for, <coughs> excuse me, for lots of people, they do want to go home. They, they want to be reunited with family. Some of them got deceived in the whole process. And we, and we see this often, you know, with trafficking from Africa up into, into Europe, that they're, they're, they're faced no option. If your options are grinding poverty, grinding poverty, grinding poverty, possibly war, you know, or just climate disaster coming, and, and you have no options as to how you're going to support your family, you, you'll take that risk. And human nature kicks in, doesn't it? Because it happens to everybody else, but it never will happen to me in that whole process. But then what you discover is that Dick Whittington is a fable. <laughs> the streets aren't paved with gold. Therefore, I want to I go back to my family, I, you know, because that's where there was love and support and community. And, and you know, it isn't just about the money in that whole process. But for those people that don't have those options, um, and, and here's another sort of myth buster as well, which is, you know, sometimes we use the word victim. We don't tend to use that. We tend to talk about the word survivor. And actually, we want to talk about Robert and Jane and Freddie and, um, you know, wh whatever their names are. And they're all pseudonyms. But just think about what courage it takes to leave your country to go to a country that you don't know to work in an environment that you don't know in order to support your family the courage that you have managed to survive that exploitation these are some of the most determined people that you'll ever meet um, and and you know actually if as a society and as a as a government we can help support them they will contribute like nothing on earth and you know i have the privilege of um, an organization that works with survivors, but I, I also know survivors and I know what they bring. Um, and, uh, you know, and we don't sit around regurgitating their stories. We, we sit around talking, you know, for some of them, we sit around talking about how are we going to stop this in the first place so that it doesn't happen to other people. And they are some of the most brilliant people. But they, they also have that humility to, to talk with you about, but th these are the things that I still struggle with. You know, um, things like, where's the door? You know, where am I between the door and being able to get away? 
and and that is just that's just inbuilt into them in in that whole process um or i i don't you know for <laughs> one friend of mine um who's a survivor um, when i go to the loo i can't lock the door because the, the thing of being locked in a small space just triggers me every time and you know what we say in terms of our work with survivors is uh, we've done our job if we can help them walk with a limp for the rest of their life wow we, that's our job's done yeah. in that whole process yeah. but let's not forget that they'll walk with a limp for the rest of their lives you, you cannot um, go through these experiences go through that level of abuse you know whether it's physical or psychological or emotional um, and, and not walk with that limp yeah so you mentioned um, Africa there so if people want to actually watch a podcast we did with a woman who was sex trafficked by her own mother who used African voodoo. Watch our interview with John Wedger and Isabella. I think it's called Exorcism from African Voodoo. I'll put the link in the description box below the video. So the biggest case in the world in the news in human trafficking then is the Epstein case. Has that brought more attention to the problem has that helped your case um not really not really <laughs> um I'll t let me make a comment about it though in terms of whenever i fly to the us um I, I i leave this country thinking i know i'm an expert in this in this subject and you know i've been doing it now for nearly 15 years um i arrive in the us and think i'm <laughs> I'm a dummy. I don't understand anymore in that whole process. It's it's bizarre in the US because the, there seems there is an obsession with sex trafficking, um, and it's only now that I think they're sort of waking up to forced labor exploitation. And globally, most people are found in situations of forced labor, but in the US context, there's just this this real focus on sex trafficking, and they've got a huge um, issue with child sex trafficking um, as well, child runaways. Um, you know, so this is the don't worry, I am getting to Epstein in that whole process. Yeah, take your time. Um, so, the, the other interesting thing in the US is you have 50 states with 50 different variations on how it deals with the issue of prostitution and child prostitution. So, they, they in some states, you can be prosecuted if you're in child prostitution. But just stop and think about it. A child can't be a prostitute. A child cannot consent to their abuse. So, you, you've got odd laws you haven't got standardization of laws and your differing police response is as well and also if you are convicted as a child prostitute which again is a misnomer it's very very difficult for that to be expunged from your your record mm. so and you you know if, if you've got a criminal record in the u.s you can't vote you can't do this 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 and that operation. so like you're a victim and we're just going to carry on as a state penalizing you in that whole process as well. Which really works to the advantage of the traffickers. <laughs> Absolutely. So to Epstein, I, I mean, I've, I've watched the Epstein case from, from this side of the pond and I, I've watched it with interest. I've never really commented on it because I just don't know where that story is going to end. Hopefully with the trial of um, Maxwell, Jelaine Maxwell, some of it will come out. My fear is only some of it will come out and, and we'll never get to the bottom of it. But that the, the fundamental issue is, are children trafficked into sexual exploitation in the US, in the UK, around the world? Yes, 
over and over and over again. In the UK, you know, we've had issues of Rotherham and Telford and Oxford and Bristol, and every single town and city has this issue. And it isn't just um, as often as played out in the media. You know, it isn't um, one ethnic minority against white children. It is it is white adults, ethnic minority adults, and, and, and on and on. And also, let's not forget the people that bought sex from these children are also guilty of, of child rape in that. So it is... It is a big problem, and, and I know some of some of the victims in, in that whole process. And I think actually that the real question is, what have we done as a society to educate predominantly men to think that it is acceptable to purchase sex from a child? Well, what kind of example is the Epstein case? I mean, I've spoke to some of the survivors, and they're really enough like the most famous people, most powerful people around the world. So what kind of an example does that set for society if the people at the top are just engaging in this kind of activity? Yeah, and I think my, my response is it's not a great example, but it's mm. not just it's not limited to there. No. It, it, it's everywhere. And I think sometimes when we just focus on that, mm. we lose sight of, you know, and you look back at, say, Oxford, Rotherham, Telford, and Blackpool, you, know, you name it, it, it it's there. Ordinary men, you know, are doing it. I would argue a vast majority wouldn't even know who Epstein was if you if you said it to them in, in that whole process. But somehow they think it is acceptable yeah. in, in that whole process. Here's the interesting thing. If you have sex with somebody that is trafficked, you are committing rape. Now, people say, um, well, maybe you should just ask. Well, Remember Robert and everybody else that we've talked about? They're not going to tell you, you know. And, you know, the, the law is, the law needs to be tweaked, and I, I'm hoping this will happen, because the moment as the law currently stands is you should ask in advance. So, you know, before we, you know, commit whatever, can I just check that you're not trafficked? Because if it is, then, you know, I'd, I'd be in the wrong and, and all of that. It just needs to be actually buying someone else is the problem. Now, you know, if you say to me, where do I stand on the whole sex worker debate and, and everything else? I kind of try and avoid it because it's just so complicated. And it, it's, it's, you know, there are no simple answers in, in that whole process. You know, as an NGO, I'm connected with NGOs that work with sex workers and, and trying to tackle that whole issue as well. And the more I try and understand it, the more complicated it is. You know, some people end up there uh, be, because of, you know, economic circumstances or you know they were abused and they drugs alcohol or or they get sold but for me the issue that concerns me is when someone is trafficked into sexual exploitation they are being repeatedly raped against their will day in day out in order to make money for somebody else that's that's the problem i want to focus on and i know it goes much much bigger than that but i you know I've only got energy for that, and that's enough energy. Or somebody is forced to work against their will, cleaning cars or nail bars or working in a restaurant or working on a construction site or in a factory or in logistics or in distribution, and are being paid, but they don't see any of that money in order to make profit for somebody else. That's just wrong. So you're talking about the demand side as well there. Yeah. What is the fate of the sex-trafficked women as they get older? If I can put it crudely, 
um, if you're trafficked into sexual exploitation, you remain there unless you flee until you are no longer economically viable. Mm. And then their fate, you, what I would say, I, my hope is that they are identified and have the courage to self or, or self-identify and, and find the support that's available for them in that whole process. The problem is, what are, what are their options long-term? And so we do see victims of trafficking for sexual exploitation going into sex work, and they will say, but now I have control and I have the money. So like as independent operators, they would move from being trafficked over to that once they reach a certain age. If they've got the help and the support to do that mm. in, in that whole process, it, it's, it's really difficult. Some of the, you know, it's kind of like, what's, what's the least worst, worst option for them? Um, and it, it depends how long they've been in that, what they've experienced. Can they go home? Do they want to go home? That's why I said we have to take everybody as an individual and work with them to say, actually, what, what, is, what is your journey to a place of resilience? And if your journey to a place of resilience is, well, the only thing I know is, quote, sex work, and therefore I want to do it, but under my own volition, and I want to control what I'm doing, then wh what are we going to do as a society about that? Are we going to judge that person? Or actually, is that part of their, their route to you know, some sort of recovery? Do some of them have a sense of shame about what's happened to them to the extent that it prevents them from going back to their families. Yeah. And sometimes fear. You know, for, for certain um, cultures, that that is an anathema for them to be able to go back. You know, they can't go back. Um, or just think of it, you know, for anyone that's listening, and, the, and maybe, this is, maybe this is sort of the thing that sort of creeps up behind you and slaps you. When we talk about these people, this is somebody's son or daughter or wife or uncle or aunt or niece or nephew. It's a, it's a person. And so what does, that, what does that person do when their story is this? For some, part of that process is them telling their story. And, and you, you know, you, you've talked with some of them. And, and that is... That is life affirming for them, you know. Saying, right, I'm I'm not going to be defined by this and, and that whole process. I suspect a lot of them are a long way on from their trafficking process uh, in that whole process. For, for others, and I think this holds true, they just want to be known as Jane or Ben. They they just want to be a person like you and I, not defined by their experience. And yet, like I said earlier. They are defined by their experience because of the, the damage and, and the hurt and the, um, the, the trauma that they've gone through. Before we go on to the organs thing then, which is quite horrific, do you have any stories of people who were sex trafficked and how they got through it? When I started Unseen, I remember someone saying to me, so how are you going to cope with like the drug addiction and the alcohol stuff and, and all of that. And so we gave thought to that and then we didn't see it. Um, 
what we did see was people turning up with PTSD, night terrors, uh, suicide attempts, um, what we've seen and and our conclusion then was and and you know we 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 did sort of ask you know were drugs used and everything else Drug, drugs weren't used alcohol wasn't used in that whole uh environment and our conclusion was well actually it's taking away from the profit because if you've got to use drugs you, if you're the exploiter you've got to use drugs then you've got to pay for the drugs and why do you want to eat into your profit? But, you know, come on, you're, yeah. a smart, you're a smart business person. What we've seen in the last few years is, uh, particularly initially with men, but now unfortunately with women as well, and not just limited to um, sexual exploitation, is the use of alcohol. B both as a means of, I think, joining the exploitation as numbing, and then now numbing from the pain and the, and the trauma as well. So, um, and it's, you know, um, um, it's a learned behavior and we are starting to see um, some use of drugs as well again not as a means of control but as a means of as a coping mechanism self-medication yeah. so, so and, and, and I would say it's entirely understandable you know some of these stories are you know and we deliberately self-edit them you know because I think you know for the listener, you know, wherever your imagination goes is is probably not wrong in, in that whole process. Um, you know, like you said, you know, we've seen people with their teeth have been smashed out with hammers or, you know, they've clearly had a broken arm, but it's never been set properly, you know, or, and we used to sort of say, you know, when people first came, the first people they needed to see were the dentist. And you've given us permission to put a clip in here. This is probably the appropriate point where we'll do it which was a six minute clip from your channel of a woman who ended up in the situation where they were hammering people's teeth out. Yeah. So we'll start that clip now. I've timestamped that 110. Okay. So I've just shown the clip. Absolutely horrific, as you guys can see. And, you know, all the little things that we take for granted, medical care. To just to get your teeth, you know, if you've got a problem, we'll just knock your teeth out. These are the things that people don't consider, are they? Yeah, but I hope people watch to the end of the clip because there's hope at the end of the clip. Yeah. And, and I think that, that's really important because you can almost sort of be consumed by the, the horror of it. Yeah. Um, and we exist and, and we talk, you know, when people come into our frontline services as victims, we talk about giving them safety, hope and choice. And, and that's really important that people feel safe because they've, they've lived in such an unsafe environment, that they've got hope for the future and choice. Like one of the first things we do when people come to our accommodation services is we hand them a key and it's the key to their room. And we say, you, you decide who comes in and who doesn't come in. And it's a little thing, but it's giving them back that permission of, and it's such an important thing. You know, I didn't realize how important it was. Um, I remember someone telling me, it, it, just it blew their mind you know just like you know it was like a leap for them when they first came in of oh i i now get to choose who's who's coming in and because they feared who was coming through the door each time and do you see them gradually adjust yeah and it's a it's a roller coaster journey <laughs> you know and 
sometimes I still have the pleasure of, of being on call. So, you know, you know, things escalate in that whole process and you think, well, how did we get there? But what kind of challenges have you had to address that have escalated? Oh, everything from um, serious self-harm to uh, fights breaking out between them, between people. You know, remember, these people don't know each other. They're on different stages and journeys, different nationalities, different, you know, Sometimes it's it's you know it's a it's a room full of laughter and other times it's a room full of tension. Do some not speak any English. Yeah, yeah. So we do English classes uh, with people. Um, you know, we people with night terrors. That that that's an appalling. Th you know, when you, when I hear the stories from my frontline colleagues of of what that individual has gone through. Um, I was funny enough. I was watching some something last night on the TV, a, a, a drama. You know. Um, it was rubbish, so I'm not going <laughs> to recommend it. But they they showed what a night terror was, you know, dramatized it in that whole process, and I just remember sort of saying to myself, "Gosh, if that if that is anywhere close to what people go through, it, it it's a horrible place to be in." Because actually, when you sleep, you have no control over of, over where your mind goes in that whole process. So you know everything you know from um, overdoses to people cutting themselves to, you know, you just deal with those, you know, and we, we work, you know, in a, in a, uh, holistic therapeutic, but also multi-agency process, you know, so, um, the health service know where we are, what it is, the police know where we are, what, what it is. Um, and so that, you know, we, we can escalate things pretty quickly yeah. when we need to, Fantastic. but most of the time it, it, it's remarkably calm. Yeah. Can I just tell you one story? Please yeah, do. This, yeah. Yeah. This just, you know, during lockdown. Mm -hmm. So I remember, you know, let's go back to whenever it was a year ago and, and lockdown happened. We were trying to work out, okay, how are we going to deliver services in lockdown? Um, can we have PPE? We were first told no. And so we had, to, you know, we had the PPE walls like everybody else did. But I remember, to, you know, one of the, the, the weekly meetings, um, one of the managers said to me, um, oh, I've got a brilliant story. One of the survivors in, in our women's shelter um, noticed that our staff were quite tense because they were, they were going, you know, they were having to come and go, not know, you know, we remember back you know, a year ago, we didn't know about COVID really much in, in that whole process. They're coming and going, they're thinking about their family as well. You know, my, put my family at risk, put myself, oh, put myself at risk, all of this. And th th this uh, woman came up to one of my workers and said, look, don't worry about us. Yeah, you know, we're we're used to being locked down. We'll be fine. You know, <laughs> you know, you, you you just cope. And I just yeah. thought it was that beautiful oh. thing of, you know, because I one of the things I was worried about: what is this going to do with our our service users? You know, being in lockdown, is it going to re-trigger things and re-traumatize them? And to turn around and say to the workers, you know, who were like going, "How are we going to cope?" You know, and all of it. Don't worry, you're going to be all right. We're used to lockdown. It's everything. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a nice story. What have you learned from the survivors? Um, great question. Have they taught you anything about yourself? Yeah, which is to always treat them with the utmost dignity. Um, to to listen to them. Um, to not. Um, to not be dismissive in any way of the issues that, that they're facing um, because I haven't walked in their shoes. Um, 
and yet at the same time and i think this is these are my my friends who are survivors who are you know now 15 year, years on it, i think those are the ones that teach me the most in terms of how still i know so little about this issue um you know i i work with some phenomenal really well qualified colleagues um who are you know super trained super you know intuitive and emotive in that whole process but talking with people that have gone through it and this is why i don't use the word victim because they were victimized but they are incredibly resilient um and those that have the courage to then confront what has happened to them and be part of this community that is trying to end modern slavery to me is like i honor you and i'm like trying to catch up with your coattails in that whole process and at the same time the fact that they are willing to honor me is it's just it's a really sort of nice relationship um that goes there and so that you know we can have the the conversations we have are about how we end this not about the regurgitation of you know and but i think it you know it's important like on this podcast for people to understand the stories but most of my time and my conversation is about how do i stop it so i don't have to come and tell these stories because you know robert 6 foot 6 and built like a brick house should not be standing in a doorway and i you know that image i can never get out of my head and i never will for the rest of my life still terrified even though i knew he was safe he was in a different you know different town but could still access his job and it you know but he he was so concerned for his self his self preservation and that of his family as well and that's not a world i want to live in it's not a world i want my kids to grow up in and i i am passionate about not living in a world where these kind of things are allowed to go on unchecked and we can see that and the viewers can see that and you're going to get a hell of a lot of support um from people who watch this so in in terms of the organs then I knew about the Chinese prisoners' organs, and now it's recently come up because of this program, Eyes of the Devil, which shows human trafficking and organ trafficking. So a lot of people are asking about this now. I don't know what's true and what's not true. From your experience, could you say down what say detail what your understanding of organ trafficking is? Yeah, I think. Uh, can we leave sort of China to one side? Yeah. Not that I'm afraid of China yeah. um, and all of that. It's just I think there is. there's a lot of information out there about what was happening in china in the, in the prison population china has said it's now stopped that whole process um and it is being monitored what i think is of more concern and what i do know about and so when back to that report that i did in 2011 to 13 we had very occasional stories about organ trafficking um around the, around the UK but they were really occasional and and when we tried to chase them down because what we didn't want to do is we didn't want to put anything in that report that we couldn't verify in that it was it was the first evidence led report um and I think that's why the government had to react because it was you know it was 300 nearly wow. 400 pages of of evidence <laughs> um in in that whole process 
So it was kind of like hard to argue against. So we decided not to put in anything about organ trafficking, but we'd picked it up in, in that whole process. Since then, um, talking with other NGOs around the globe, there are stories of organ trafficking, but it's related to um, the transplant uh, business around that. So um, you do get occasional stories of, of you know, um, body parts, you know, people being killed for body parts, but they are really, really rare. And I think the reason that they're really, really rare is just think of the risk around that. I know traffickers, they think of a human being just as a commodity. They'll extract all the profit that they can from it, and then they'll just toss it aside. But it is a whole nother step to actually, you know, knock somebody off that's around that. Does happen, but it's rare. What we do see, though, is um, people will go into a village and, you know, wherever. Pick any country you like. Let's say Indonesia, all right? Don't bombard me, Indonesian government. I'm not picking on you. Um, but they'll go into a village and they'll say, look, there are people in the West that are willing to pay in order to get a kidney so that they're not stuck on a, a waiting list, you know, waiting for a kidney transplant. We will pay you $5,000 for your kidney. You can live on one kidney. That's medically true. So just think, you're in a village in the middle of nowhere in Indonesia, $5,000, that's a king's ransom. Yep, you're going to take it. Um, and sometimes they'll bring somebody along that's had it and they'll show them the scar and say, look, I'm, I'm happy, you know, whatever. Great. Um, and there's a great Canadian film uh, maker that made a story, uh, made a film about this. Oh, what's it called? Oh, gosh, you need to ask me. We'll, we'll Google it and find it. We'll <laughs> stick it in the... <laughs> um, all that. So they, so they do that. So they leave. They're flown to a, another country and they go to a hospital and it is all done properly. And it, it has to be. If you're going to have that kidney, it's going to be, be used in that whole process. So they have the operation. They wake up. They come around. Uh, and the person that's arranged it all then comes in and says, great, it's all done. Everything else. Here's the bill for the hospital. $5,000. So you can do the math, can't you? 5,000 minus 5,000 gives you oh, zip. zip. You go back. Here's the problem. Um, if you have only one kidney, then, um, and my mother only has one kidney, you need to be on a drug regime just to manage that whole process. So you don't have access to that. So th there's the potential health problems. You don't necessarily need drugs, but it, it helps in that whole process. This Canadian filmmaker has documented whole villages where all the males have got the, the scar here, you know, where the kidneys have been removed. So again, what it is, it is all about profit. Now, let's just flip the story. You're on a waiting list for a kidney. The NHS here in the UK or in the US or in Europe, and you're told, Sean, you need a kidney, but it's going to take about a couple of years. You'll have to do dialysis and the whole process and all of that. You can go on the internet, legitimately, and you can go and have a transplant done in Hungary, India, South Africa, you know, wherever. It'll cost you X ten thousand of dollars. But you're going, do I want to be on dialysis and all of that rubbish and wait and wait and wait and match and everything else? Or I can submit bloods and get the match and do it and go. So lots of people go. Just don't ask yourself where that kidney has come from and don't do the due diligence in that whole process. 
Because what if it's come from that person that was in a village that was promised $5,000, but now hasn't got the $5,000, and now their life chances are scuppered? That, that to me is, that's the most prevalent form of organ trafficking that, that we're aware of. There are lots of sort of stories around here, there, and everywhere else. But when you try and get down into, okay, so show me the evidence for this, it's, it's few and far between. But fundamentally, it's still about somebody being exploited, this time for a body part, for money, then not getting the money, and the money's going into somebody else's pocket and making them vast amounts of profit. And here in the West, in the developed world, we're benefiting on the backs of somebody else in that whole process. You had a friend who had a liver, he had hepatitis C. And he was joking about going to China to get a prison liver. And um, he, he died. Yeah, he ran out of time. He died. Um, so in terms of trafficking then, we, you, you've talked about it's more like of a manipulation and the families are threatened and things like that. Is it also a rarity where you have like people getting grabbed I know there's a lot of theories around the Madeleine McCann case that she was perhaps grabbed. Um, is that a rarity in what you've documented? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. Um, it's it's not unknown, um, and 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 people are, but but it is it is few and far between. In in essence, it, um, what happens w with trafficking into slavery? Uh, and servitude is there is the recruitment phase and and that could be hey there's a job over here or hey i'm your new wonderful boyfriend mm. or um hey there's five thousand dollars for your kidney or you know and added with that is the deception so there isn't a job there isn't five thousand dollars and i'm not your wonderful boyfriend mm. the whole process there's then the movement and I think part of the problem that grew up historically is even though when you look at how it's defined, it doesn't say this, but everyone thought movement meant from one country to another. Movement is just from one side of the street to another. That, for the purpose, it acts meaning purpose, for the purpose of exploitation. What we see is, and, and this is the way I define modern slavery, is it is an illicit trade it's a commodity trade. The commodity is a human being, and it is about exploiting that commodity for vast profits. So we see stories of people that are in forced labor exploitation during the day and in forced sexual exploitation at night. And why wouldn't you? It's your commodity. I'm a business person. I want to make, maximize the profit out of it. So I might as well get, you know, get, wring every last penny out of this human being. And that's the way that exploiters think, that it is nothing more than that. And that, you know, again, people can YouTube it and there's, um, there's uh, news reports. Uh, they interviewed some um, traffickers in, I think it was Moldova. And the disdain that they had for their victims w was appalling. Because they, they were just like, well, what's the problem? They... And this is, I think, what traffickers do, is they dehumanize the people. It, it, it's totally, de they do not see the person in front of them as another human being in, in that whole process. And, and that's the tragedy. So for them, it is just, it's a commodity trade. For us, and, and we often talk about this, this is a problem that's hidden in plain sight, 
So the person that's doing your nails or the person that's tarmacking your drive or the person that's washing your car or the person that's um, you know, delivering your online deliveries or the person that's handing you your takeaway or that's behind the scenes that you can't see or that's in that grow house or, 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 or unfortunately, is a person that has feelings, that has emotions, that is in fear, they haven't been dehumanized to the same extent that the trafficker sees them as dehumanized. They are just piling up on themselves the, the damage that's been done to them. I think people watching this podcast are going to be looking at the world differently after they've heard what you've said. So what signs should people look for? Um, there's many. Here's what I want people to do. If you're in the UK, download the Unseen app. It's in Google Store, Apple Store. Download it. It's got all the signs on there. Or go to our website. It's got all the signs listed there or the modernslaveryhelpline.org website. All which, those links will be in the description well, box below the video. All, the, all are there. But here's some big ones to look for. Just their general demeanor. Are they in fear? And here's the other myth buster. They're not locked up the whole time, often walking amongst us. But fearful, don't engage. Not appropriately dressed for the job that they're doing. That they're under the control of somebody else. You know, often we say to the police, they don't have access to their papers in that whole process. Um, coming and going at strange hours. Um, you know, when you try and engage them, that they don't engage, that, you know, um, so I've, you know, sort of retrospectively stories, you know, people saying, oh, I was, I was in that nail bar. They, they would never talk to me. You know, they would never look at me. Or if I asked something, they'd always look off to the site and there was a person saying, can I say this or not? You know, so they're under somebody else's control. Um, they don't know where they are. We've had victims, you know, we, we've, they use the word victims, but they're victims until they come to us. We've had survivors who didn't even know they were in the UK. So they, they just don't know where, where they are. Um, if they have, you know, within um, trafficking for sexual exploitation, the only sort of words they know are around sex acts in terms of English uh, around that. Um, but, but go to the website, download the app. There's, there's loads of them there. But it comes down to this. It comes down to your gut. You, 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 can, you can, you know, like you can see, I can't, I can't always remember all of them. But it is just a gut instinct. Something, and it's when you go, something's not right here. So take the car wash. Okay. Uh, by the way, you cannot get your car wash for a fiver. All right. It just, it, it doesn't work. Um, the trouble is when we say that, then the traffickers are smart. They just put their prices up to 15 quid, <laughs> just to mask it. But you can only pay one person at the car wash. You can only pay in cash. One person seems to be in control of everybody else. They all come and go you know, first thing in the uh, day and last thing at night, you know, usually in a van or a couple of cars. Um, they all, you know, houses of what we call multiple, multiple occupancy, uh, another tell. Or um, if you live in Bristol, you can smell cannabis all the time. But um, but you just that, you know, that sweet smell of cannabis that's coming from the house next door or from the, the, un the business unit down the road there. It's just, it's little tales and you go, mm, something's not right. Here's what I want people to do. If you live in the UK, call the helpline. Just go, I've seen this. It just doesn't feel right. Don't worry about it if you get it spectacularly wrong because we can triage it and deal with it and, and liaise with policing, deal with it properly. What was my next question about safely reporting concerns and to whom? If someone's in immediate danger, dial 999. 
or 911 if you're in the US. If you just see something immediately, it's like it's the same rule applies. In the US, you can call the US um, trafficking hotline. Don't ask me for their number. It's too long, too many num mm. numbers. In the UK, you call the UK's modern slavery helpline that, that we run unseen on 08000 121 700, and we'll stick all the blood in the bottom around that. Or you can report via the app and you can geolocate if you want to. It's optional. You opt in. Look, I'm here. I've seen this. This is the location. We deal with it. Um, you know, last year, we, you know, in the middle of lockdown, we took 7,000 cases. Um, contacts came into us around that. The vast majority around situations of forced labor. Mm. And some major cases have been busted open by somebody calling because wow. you may have that last piece of the jigsaw that we can triage, that we can get to the right people in the police force. And we know we interact with every single police force, National Crime Agency, Border Force. So we can slot it in and then they go, oh, that's the whole picture. Right now we can go. And people say we're not giving solutions. We are giving you solutions today to make changes and to fix this. With county lines then, you know, obviously kids are extremely vulnerable. We've got to protect the kids. Could you just run down what county lines means and how that works? Yeah, county lines is a horrible term. Um, that, let's call it what it is. It's child criminal exploitation. So kids are being exploited for criminal acts. So what happens is that the methodology is usually, is, it's a number of things. So in some circumstances, it is about people want to be in the gangs. And it's as a means of perceived safety or status, you know, within the estate that they live in and, and, and everywhere else. They get sucked into it and then they get drawn into a, a, the life of crime, usually through, you've done this right now, we've got, um, you know, oh, can you take this package from here to here? Oh, yeah, yeah. And they, they don't realize what it is. Right, you just moved heroin from there to there. If you say anything, we'll, you know, we've recorded it on film, we'll give it to the police. Again, it's all about control in that whole process. Or to be a part of the gang, there's initiation rights, you know, and then they're videoed and then they're played back and, you know, we'll show your parents or, or whatever. So they're sucked in and then they're, they're forced. And that can be either running drugs, usually from a city to a town or city to the countryside uh, in that whole process. What we saw during lockdown is um, kids, um, obviously older kids, being forced to dress as if they were sort of key workers to try and avoid detection, you know, because none of us were out, out and moving it at that, that whole point. Uh, we'll see the phenomena of cuckooing as well. So that is um, often taking over the house of a vulnerable person, or, um, and then that the base from which the, the drugs are distributed as well, and the use of burner phones that will announce when the drugs are coming. And so it's a really sophisticated operation. People say, oh, it's only happened to kids from you know, council states and everything else. No, it's not. It's happened to middle-class kids, upper-class. You know, it's happening to kids in general. Um, it can be around um, a means of having money in order to purchase things. You know, so again, do this for us, we'll give you 50 quid. You know, and then, then the trap sprung. So it is, it's the same methodology. You know, set the trap, spring the trap, Deceive the kid, get hold of the kid, and then force them to do those things. Um, so, what we're seeing now, though, is is criminals wising up to this as well. Because in the Modern Slavery Act, there's a there's a, a, a defence, which is if I'm forced to do an illegal, a criminal act as a result of my trafficking, therefore the, the law the law will be more lenient. It's assessed case by case. Um, because, you know, even if you're in that situation, you, you know, there is still an element of, well, did you protest or et cetera? 
So what we're now seeing criminal gangs doing is is telling kids, if you get stopped, just say, oh, I'm being trafficked, and then plead that in order to do it. Wow. Here's the problem. And this is the problem. You'll know this with drugs, but you'll also know this. I know this from trafficking is what is really difficult is how do you get to the people higher up the food chain in that whole process? So we're quite good at picking up like the the members of the gang that are the ones that are exploiting the kids initially. But how do you get to the people that are sitting above that? That's, that's following the money. It is following the money. But again, it is it is an environment of fear. And consequence if you say something in that whole process. That said, you know, there are cases from trafficking, you know, where major criminal gangs have been taken down. Why? Because victims have been had the courage to say something. And and this is one of the things that we need to do better. If we care for victims really well and look after them, um, and th there's a there's another great um, NGO that, that does this called Justice and Care. Check them out. Um, they, they are having specialist workers embedded in the police forces. So when, a, when the police find a victim, they work with the victim. And, and it is, it's a hand-holding. But what they're finding is if, if you care for people really well and treat them with dignity, then they're willing to they build that courage to say, here's the whole story of what went on. And that enables police to get further. And that, look, that goes all the way back to that police officer that you know spoke that we spoke to uh, in two thousand and seven. Hit. What was his frustration? I can't get the bad guys because the victims are disappearing. You know, and you know, part of the complaint is what? Why aren't we prosecuting more people and everything else? Part of the answer is we're not caring for victims well enough. And supporting them well enough so that they feel that they have the confidence to share what they know is going on so that they can get to those and on the other side is we're not um, spending enough energy and resource time energy and money thinking about how do we stop this in the first place you know that village in romania where there are no options where in the village there are the palatial mansions that have been built and people going, you could have this too. You know, so just come with me and come and work there. Why aren't we as a society, as governments going, actually, we need to give those people options there so that they're not falling into this, this trap. We need to pay workers, you know, in factories properly, you know, a contextualized living wage so they can support their families so that their kids don't end up in child labor or feeling that they have to go and you know, risk things to find a job overseas to support their families. You know that, yes, complex, big issues, but they're not beyond the ken of all of us to do this. Well, that's something else that I thought about. We spend all this money bombing the poorest countries of the world when we could be building hospitals and schools and all kinds in those countries instead of. But it's it's complex, isn't it? I know James has um, got an interest in county lines, don't you, James? What's your county lines question for Andrew? Um, yeah, how, how young can the kids be? Are um, We've seen as young as nine, ten. I mean, most are sort of young teens. Um, and, and just think about, you know, it's the smarts behind this. You know, when are kids most vulnerable and most impressionable and, and want to have 
status and it matters and it's important. And but status isn't necessarily about having the, the flashiest toys. It's about acceptance by your peers. Psychological. Again. Yeah, it's it's all the same. That's what they prey on uh, around that. Trap them early, and then you see, you know, you've got that commodity to use in in that whole process. It doesn't matter how poor you are, then does it? It's just you want to belong. Yeah, you, you, you could be from any section of society. Yeah, yeah. They're smart. Want to be cool, getting in with the gang. Yeah, yeah. So do they like have them driving cars and stuff if they're old enough to do that transport drugs across the country? Um, yeah, or they're driven. Or they're driven. Yeah. But, they, they you know, during lockdown, they use public transport. Again, mm. you know, dressed as a key worker to avoid detection in that whole process. Yeah. Uh, it, the trouble with driving is, you know, a lot of these gangs are being watched by the police. So, you know, um, the, the reg will get pinged. Oh, why, why is that car there and, and everything else? So they know how these things work. Yeah. So they adapt their methodologies in order to avoid detection. So we work with Neil Woods, who's an ex-undercover cop. Who was he's? I think he founded Leap UK. It used to be Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, but I think it's Law Enforcement Action Partnership. It is now, and he said it's an arms race. Everything the authorities do, the traffickers come up with a response that, and then the authorities got to come up with another response, and it just gets more deadly because the consequences become to the point where the most violent and dangerous organizations are the ones who dominate that trade. And have you seen that in, and he's talking about drug trafficking, but have you seen parallels of that in people trafficking? Yeah, and look, it's an unfair fight because if you're a trafficker, you don't give a rip about the laws of the land. You're not bothered by international boundaries uh, and you don't have protocols and procedures that you've got to follow. And, and then are accountable to, and scrutinized afterwards, you know, if you, if you get it wrong in that whole process. Um, and the bureaucracy of government and policing, et cetera, moves incredibly slowly. You're well-resourced, you're nimble, you can spin on a dime. We saw this with COVID. You know, we said to ourselves, what is going to happen to trafficking victims in the UK? Where are they going to be exploited now that the nail bars, the construction sites, the car washes, all, the <coughs> all those hidden in plain sites were shut down? Well, 2019, 10,000 victims went into the national referral mechanism. 2020, full lockdown, 10,500 victims went in. You know, so no change. They just pivoted. They just found different. They, all they did was, oh, I've got a commodity. I'll move it from there to there and I'll carry on exploiting it in that operation. So they can move really fast. They're also massively resourced. 150 billion, let's call it half a trillion profit per annum. So massively massively resourced they're also smart they're they're using technology and they're also knowing how to evade technology as well because if you go all in on technology you can probably you know it's it's getting easier and easier to be tracked in that whole process so you know i i've heard stories of you know they use completely non-technology means of doing it you know so it, it's like nowhere near you know a mobile phone or, or any any of those things that can be tracked and pinged and not because they know that they, they can't be tracked. So, you know, as society shifts in this way, you go, all right, we'll go over here. Oh, we can be tracked here, or we'll go here. And then what do we do is then we, you know, people say, well, we want to know what's going on. So we blast all the news of, of how it's happened everywhere. It's kind of like playing poker with, <laughs> with an enemy going, let me just show you my hand first. And you go, all right, fine. <laughs> you know, so actually we need to be smart. But actually the, the really smart thing is, is, 
tackling the structural things that enable trafficking to take place in the first place. You know, so for me, it is, it is how do you tackle the supply and the demand? And in, in doing that, there are big, big levers that you've got to be pulled. The problem is governments around for what, four or five years and can't think beyond that. Uh, you know, and that's true in any country. So I'm not having a pop at just our government. It is, where is the ambition to say, look, this is a generational problem. We need to work on this for 40 years and we're going to do the big structural things and the things that we, there's going to be things that we do where we're not going to reveal our hands and what we're doing. And there are things that we're going to do which we know will not have an instant vote win, but in a generation's time will. You know, and that involves government, law enforcement, also involves business. You know, I know as businesses, they have a critical responsibility to re-educate us about the value of things. I, I had the privilege a few years ago going to India and I ended up in a factory that was making shirts for a major company in, in this country, legitimate factory, every, every, you know, ticked every box, it was good, it was a good factory. I would not want to work in that environment for 12 hours a day, every day, at all. But what I walked away from was about, I value this now. I, I know what it takes to make one of these. Also because I know about all the exploitation stuff as well. I cannot with a clear conscience buy things that I know are not economically viable in that whole process. Now we as Unseen, we work with a lot of great businesses now who are committed to doing this. But we've had 40 years of creating this problem and you know it's going to take us 40 years to get out of this problem but where where's the vision and the drive to do it over 40 years because a politician's going you know at best when a new new government forms you've got two and a half three years and then they're worried about re-election and this isn't a a electoral cycle issue this is a long-term issue you know and there are big structural things that that we need to address and i know we're going a bit esoteric <laughs> But actually, that's the only way we get out of this problem. That's true. We need the solutions. We need more people like you with the long-range thinking and, and planning to be carrying that forward. So we're almost at the two-hour mark, Andrew. And I know we've got all these names of all these stories. Perhaps we could just pick a story that's got a nice ending to uh, finish on after yeah, going over so, this. So none of those. Let, let me... None of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, I mean... Um... <laughs> often the stories I know we, we don't put on, on the website. So yeah, and, um, yeah. th th that's, please go and see the website, read the stories. Cause yeah, they're, they're, the they're, down there. Th those, those stories are important because it will touch people with the, the reality of, of what's going on. Yeah. Um, I, I'll tell you a, a story that does end in hope. Um, we uh, were doing some work with um, Avon and Somerset Police um, in Bath, Genteel Bath of all, of all places. Um, and we were doing something with the, what the police call problem profiling. So it's, we know we've got a problem, but we don't yet fully understand it. So we'll get, we're going to go out, have a sniff around and just see what we, what's going on and, and try and pick it up. Um, and so some of my frontline colleagues went uh, and they were looking at nail bars and they went into this one nail bar and 
um, like all the spider senses of my team went off going, mm, <laughs> something's not right here. And there were two young girls in there, both identical stories that just didn't add up in that whole process. And quite clearly the person that was in charge was, was in charge and had control over them. But there wasn't enough other than it was a gut feeling. Um, and at that time, the police were like, no, no, no. And we went, no, 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 no. Oh, yeah, <laughs> there is there. There was then another piece of intel came into the police, so they went back going, okay, there is enough now that we, we want to have a, a, a really good look around. Girls weren't there. Gone, disappeared. Going, oh, no, like I told you, they were doing this. They've now gone back and all of this. And we thought, oh, it's gone cold. You know, and that's a regular ha yeah, occurrence for us. They then got picked up in a different nail bar up in Staffordshire. Again, the police were thankfully switched on. And as a result of that, the case just bust open. And there were a number of different nail bars that were linked the length and breadth of the country. This case became the first case that got prosecuted around child victims of trafficking in forced labor situation where the victims didn't have to go to court and tell their story. There was enough what they call other evidence, circumstantial evidence, that they could go forward with a victimless prosecution in that whole process. Um, and it became a landmark case because actually one of the things was victims, you know, for a victim to go to court and tell their story is again re-traumatizing in that whole process. It's a really, really difficult process for them. So actually one of the big pushes was from policing was, look, like we do with other crimes where there are vulnerable victims, we can prosecute if we've got all this other bit around it. So they gathered all this evidence and it went to court and it has been, it's been filmed. Um, it was, I think, on a BBC documentary. Um, and it is, um, Caroline Hall, he's the QC on it, um, who's a friend of mine. They successfully prosecuted this case without the victims having to go through that whole process. Um, and the victims got into care and support and are thriving wow. in, in that whole process. <laughs> but it started by, it started, you know, on our, if you like, our local patch by just going out, we're not quite sure what's going on here. Let's go and investigate. Let's have a look in that whole process. And through, you know, a mixture of good policing, good liaison work between an NGO and a police force, and across that, you get to a place of um, a landmark prosecution. And you know the way the, the law works in this country is everything is around case law, around that. So it was really critically important that that trial was successful because it, it cemented in place that you can get these prosecutions without needing victims wow. to, to testify. So it was, it was really significant for policing, but for the law, mm. uh, but also for those victims that they didn't get re-traumatized. Um, and, you know, the, from the helpline, there are lots of stories of people just calling and having that snippet of information, following that gut instinct, doing the most un-British thing possible, which is calling and saying, I think there's something wrong here. You know, we think we shouldn't do that as a nation for some bizarre reason. That has led to people, you know, getting out of situations. We had one call that led to... Uh, uncovering 240 victims. A grief, wow. One call. What if that person hadn't made that call? I'm never gonna look at a nail salon again now after speaking to you, Andrew.
Oh no, let's just say there are some good nail salons out there as well. I don't want the nail salon industry ganging up on me. <laughs> so I'm sure that many of you out there want to support Andrew's work. At the very least, you can subscribe to his YouTube channel. I'd like to see that with over 100 subscribers by the end of the day of this podcast release. And all the links are going to be down there for everything else he's doing. Like I said earlier on, there's the story of Tanya, Frank, Priscilla, Clara, Norman, Harriet, Adam, Martin, yet untold on this channel. But you can click down and go on the website and read the summaries of what's happened in these people's lives. It's really harrowing, but to see them emerge, you know, is um, it gives us hope. So all those links will be down there in the description box. Please let us know in the comments what you thought about this. Huge thank you, Joe and James, coming out today, filming free podcasts. It's happened again on one day. And um, huge thank you for to Andrew for coming out. Um, huge thank you to the new subs. Subscription logo is in the bottom right-hand corner. And I'll, I'll give you a, a, a bump then, eh, to finish. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, well done. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Stretch real quick. Whoa.